Dr. Jackson, thanks so much for your time today. We really appreciate your being with us to talk about your research. In your research, you hypothesized that the, that the lack of differentiation by type of abuse is one of the powerful reasons for the inconsistencies in identifying risk factors of elder abuse. And can you just say a little bit more about this for us? Sure. Um, so I wanted to begin by um, giving you a little bit of background. I'm a developmental psychologist by training, and I began my career in child maltreatment. And in that field, um, we make a clear distinction between different types of child maltreatment. And um, I began kind of moving in the realm of elder abuse in the mid-2000s. And um, when I started reading that literature, I was, I guess, surprised to find that um, the, the elder abuse studies that I was reading about tended to lump different forms of elder abuse together. And, um, and so I, I w I'm definitely not the per first person to um, think about differentiating types of elder abuse studies. People were doing that in the in the 80s, but um, for some reason that approach didn't seem to catch on. And the problem is when you um, when all these types of elder abuse are lumped together, the findings um, aren't really that useful. But but more importantly, um, the findings can be really misleading, and that's what I find disturbing about lumping different forms of elder abuse together. So if you're basing your interventions on potentially misleading information, um, the interventions may not be very effective. And if you look at the intervention reviews that have been done, that's generally what they find. Um, unfortunately, the interviews we've been using, so the interventions we've been using um, haven't been all that effective. So I'm definitely all about differentiating types of elder abuse. And I recognize that types of elder abuse flow, um, you know, sometimes um, can be related to one another. Um, but also, um, one thing that we were really interested in was the co-occurring um, types of abuse. So we were looking at um, when financial exploitation co-occurs with physical abuse and or neglect. So we use these silly terms, and, and um, so we use the terms pure financial exploitation and hybrid financial exploitation. And that's because we really wanted to make a distinction between um, financial exploitation that occurs in isolation or by itself and when financial exploitation co-occurs with something else. And the way we were using it was in terms of physical abuse and or neglect. And what we found is that it really matters. It really matters if you are talking about financial exploitation by itself or with other um, types of abuse. And, um, and then also, you know, we were looking at physical abuse and neglect as well. So across those four types of abuse that we were looking at, we really found significant and meaningful differences. And I think this is so important because it really the more we know about the risk factors, the more tailored the prevention and intervention efforts can be um, exactly. more targeted. And so how was it that you came to choose the four types of elder abuse that you were specifically looking at? You've just explained the difference between pure financial abuse and yes. hybrid financial exploitation, mm -hmm. and then you were looking at physical abuse and neglect. And how was it that you came right. to, to look at those four? 
Okay. So generally there are six types of elder abuse that we think about, right? The four that you just mentioned, um, there's psychological abuse, abandonment, and sexual abuse. And we knew that we couldn't study all types of elder abuse in one study, but I will say that the reviewers of our manuscripts always ask, what about sexual abuse, what about psychological abuse? Um, but my colleague at the time, Tom Hafemeister, had written the um, National Research Council's chapter on financial exploitation, and he noted that there was a lack of research on financial exploitation. So really the purpose of our proposal to the National Institute of Justice was to look at financial exploitation. So clearly that was one of the forms we were going to be looking at. And then we had heard from Adult Protective Services that financial exploitation often co-occurs with physical abuse or neglect, and so we thought that that would be our hybrid category. And then because we wanted to be able to compare these forms of abuse occurring in isolation versus when they occur together, we wanted to include physical abuse and neglect. Um, so it's not to say that these other forms of abuse are not important, we shouldn't study them, or they're less prevalent or anything like that. Um, it was. Um, uh, a combination of practical reasons and, and an interest in what we were um, uh, submitting our proposal to do. It sounds like there had to be some sort of threshold understanding of those before we could go on and look at more the more complex kinds and where where the issue of poly victimization occurs across not just the hybrid financial exploitation but other kinds of poly victimization where multiple kinds of abuse happen at once. Absolutely, and, and I, I also did want to um, make the comment that we didn't use the term polyvictimization because um, that can stand for a lot of different things. So we really were looking at um, financial exploitation and you know, physical abuse or ne and or neglect. Um, and so we gave it this kind of odd name of hybrid financial exploitation. But yes, clearly the importance of polyvictimization, I think, is, is, can't be understated. So in terms of the findings that you came up with as a result of your research, what are some of the things that people who work with older adults, what are some of the takeaway um, messages that you'd like them to get from your research? Well, I think we've just been talking about the co-occurring aspect of different types of financial exploitation. Um, and one of the things that we found is that, that um, you know, we didn't go into the methodology, but I would talk to APS caseworkers and their victims, um, and sometimes a, a third party, a non-offending third party. And um, so when we would talk to them, um, sometimes a, an APS caseworker might get a report for a particular type of abuse, but when they actually start investigating, then they find other types of abuse. And, um, and so I guess that, you know, I would encourage people to be looking for other forms of abuse, um, that that the incoming report or something that you know even the general public sees might be just the tip of the iceberg of what's going on in somebody's life. How important that is for case plans, our intervention efforts, and our prevention efforts. So the complexity of these cases was really amazing to us. So many of the cases involved patterns of behavior that exist that have existed for years, if not. Um, decades, and I'd really like to see us move away from tips and easy solutions. These are not 
easy cases and they require more resources than we currently can provide, either time or money. So the complexity of these cases, I think, is really, really important to get across, and, you know, which is related to the longevity. Again, many of these victims, their abuse didn't start when they were 60. Um, so unlike some crimes that are kind of an event, these are really ongoing and long-term situations, and, um, and they're going to be really, really difficult for us to intervene in. In the next podcast, we can look at the research and the implications of how your research would help identify elder abuse. So let's take a break, and we'll come back in just a second. Sounds great. This podcast was produced by the National Center on Elder Abuse. For more information, visit us at www.ncea.aoa.gov. Search for our other podcasts through iTunes University or on YouTube. Our channel is NCEA at UCI. Thanks for joining us.